YouTube series has been designed for you to hear other people's experiences who have persevered in the most dire circumstances. I'm using hope as an acronym here to help you get inspired to keep going because I don't want you to give up. The stories you will listen to are told firsthand by people who have faced some incredibly frightful challenges and kept moving forward despite it all. You'll hear honest accounts of their physical, mental, and emotional states. They'll share advice on what to do and what not to do should you or a loved one find yourself in a similar situation. They'll want you to laugh with them. And most importantly, they'll share tips for building resiliency and how they got the strength to do it all. Today, I'm talking with Dr. Katie Kashmanian about her inflammatory breast cancer diagnosis. Katie's a good friend of mine, and she's one of those friends that I keep very near and dear to my heart, though we don't see each other much because of our schedules, and we text only every now and then just to check in. Every time we do, we pick right back up where we left off, just like it was yesterday. Katie's known as Dr. K, and her role is a middle school principal. She has her doctorate in educational leadership, and she's currently working on her third master's in mental health and wellness counseling. For the last nine years, I have literally been watching Katie fight for her life. Listen in as she shares her story. I was looking at CaringBridge, your CaringBridge site, and I noticed that your last post was February of last year, and you're coming up on an anniversary, right? Aren't you coming up on nine years? I am, February 14th. Yep. Yeah. I can't believe it's been nine years. I kind of stopped, um, you know, CaringBridge was so useful and I would recommend it to people, especially when you're in the thick of things, um, because it's hard to keep everyone updated. But one of the things you learn is that the people in your life have to use stamina to um, keep supporting you as the years go by and you're, you're not in active treatment or if you're in remission and, you know, that stamina wanes and then you don't want to feel like you need to, you know, advertise that you need support either. (laughs) So, I mean, I did have, I've had um, two surgeries since that last post, but I just didn't, I'm like, eh, you know, it's not that big of a deal. And I don't need, you know, I, I I think it's time for me to stop posting on there for now. Basically, I think people need to move on to somebody who needs, uh, who needs them more right now than I do. And that's so, it's funny to hear you say that because as a friend, I'm saying, but I need you more. I need to know where you are. <laughs> I need to know where you, like, I need to know where you are. Like, I want to know, did that wound ever heal? I'm feeling myself tear up when you say that to me. Oh my goodness. Um, Which is surprising to me. I think because one of the things people don't understand about a cancer diagnosis is that for good or for bad, things are never going to be the same again for good or for bad. And there is a lot of good with the bad. And um, yes, the wound did heal eventually and I have to say going through a non-healing wound was one of the worst things in the entire nine years that I've had to deal with that was pretty horrible and since then I had an attempt at a lymph node transplant to deal with my lymphedema and I had reconstructive surgery Um, 
And I will say that because, well, actually that was before the non-healing wound. That's why, that's right. Um, that caused the non-healing wound. And, but the aftermath of that is that the lymph node transplant didn't work because it was in the area where the non-healing wound was. So that was kind of a waste. And I didn't really want reconstructive surgery. I only did it because they did those two surgeries together, which leaves me not thrilled with the whole thing, um, especially because it's been like a year of my life of not being able to do a lot of the things I had gotten into the rhythm of doing. So I have to resume that rhythm because it was a very healthy, nurturing rhythm. And then I also have had... Uh, because this whole area, the uh, I should say the right side of my um, body was radiated, sections of it, the bones there aren't as, um, I don't know, I'll use the term juicy, <laughs> as the, the bones on the rest of my body. And um, so I was having a lot of pain and I needed a full hip replacement um because i was in a, more pain than my normal chronic pain and so i'm just recovering from that now um i'm doing well with that um and hopefully i keep saying to myself hopefully this is it hopefully this is it but you never know what the reverberations are of the things that you've um you've had done but they they were all in the name of keeping you here and i have an inappropriate motto um i hope i'm allowed to say a curse you word are. You are. My my motto is with the double middle fingers up, still here, bitches. <laughs> still here, bitches. Because um I am above average. I was supposed to last about five years and I am still here, bitches. Love so it. So it might not always be the most comfortable and it's been a rocky road, but filled with lessons and blessings and challenges. You're hysterical. There's this one post that you have on your Facebook page that says, if you want to, you can find a million reasons to hate life and be angry at the world. Or if you want to, you could find a million reasons to love life and be happy. Choose wisely. And I love your Facebook posts because if there's anybody out there that could be spewing anger and, you know, victimization. It could, you know, you you could take that stance if you wanted to, but you don't and you never have. And that's why I wanted to have this conversation with you because it's been one thing after another with you. As I, as I, as I get news from you, as I would read Caring Bridge and I would read it out loud, and Steve would say, What else does this woman? <laughs> have to endure. I said, I don't, I don't know, but I also don't know how she does it because it's, I, I, I marvel. I marvel at your strength. I marvel at your determination, at your wisdom, at your ability to continue to give wisdom to people that are going through things, you know, that I don't want to say lesser because everything is relative, but, um, you're just always there for people, regardless of what you're going through. Let's take a minute for you to just let the listeners know what your diagnosis was. Because I remember, I remember exactly where I was when I got the phone call. I remember that I was resting under a blanket and I saw your name pop up on the phone. I'm like, wow, what a perfect time to talk to Katie. This is awesome. She's got great timing. And then even when you told me about it, it was like, hello, hello, I've got cancer, Jen. Like you just right away, you just went right to the punch. You had a purpose for calling me. 
and you got right to the purpose. And that has been the way that you've handled every single thing that's come your way with this diagnosis. So what was your diagnosis nine years ago? Well, you know, it's funny because my mom had breast cancer twice, 10 years apart. And so, and I've had a million mammograms and biopsies and all kinds of stuff over my youth, over the years of my youth, because, you know, I was being proactive because of my mom's history. And um, so I was almost waiting to be diagnosed with breast cancer, to be honest with you. I'm like, it's going to happen. The doctors would say, oh, you have busy breasts because I had a bunch of calcifications in there. But what happened is I started And oddly, I tie this to having been vegan for two years and then stopped being vegan, even though everyone tells me that's irrational. (laughs) I had been vegan for two years, went with some friends to Portugal. How could you be a vegan in Portugal? I mean, seriously, the seafood, the, you know, all the food. So I stopped being vegan. And then, you know, very soon after that, I noticed that my right breast started swelling. I mean, it was really weird. It, 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 I just looked down one day and I had this, swollen, almost like it looked like I had a boob job on one side, like perfect looking boob. I'm like, this is so weird. And, you know, I, I didn't freak out or anything. I mean, it must be something, you know, pre-menopause. I don't know. But I talked to, to a couple of my friends about it and, and they even poo-pooed it. They're like, oh, it's just hormones, you know. But I thought, you know, I, I should get checked just to make sure. And my biggest mistake at that time was going to a doctor near where I lived, not my childhood, you know, the doctor I've had my whole life. Um, so I went to this guy that's uh, in town where, where I live and uh, he did an exam and he said, I, you know, I don't feel anything. And this was in, um, I believe, October of 2013. I don't feel anything. Okay. So he said, when is your next mammogram? And I said, February. He said, I think you can wait till then. I'm like, okay, great. So I waited. And in February, I went and they told me I needed a biopsy. They had me come right back in. And when I went in for my biopsy, the doctor said to me, do you realize your breast is swollen and the skin is really thickened? Now, I didn't realize the skin was thickened. I just knew my breast was stolen. I said, yeah, I, I went to a doctor. He said it was fine. She said, that's the sign of a rare and very aggressive form of breast cancer. And you need to see a breast specialist immediately. Now, this was on a Friday at um, about 4.30 in the afternoon on Valentine's Day. Yeah, Valentine's so, I remember that. Yeah. So I went home and immediately and I remember where I was. I had my laptop and I was sitting in in that house where I used to live in the in the closet, <laughs> sitting on the floor of my closet. And Googling, you know, rare, aggressive, swollen breast. And I came up with this um, type of cancer called inflammatory breast cancer. And it's a cancer where there's no lump. The cancer grows in sheets in the milk ducts of the breast. So when you do an exam, there's, there's no lump. Now, I had never heard of inflammatory breast cancer, but, and no one that I know had heard of it. And clearly the doctor who told me I was fine had never heard of it. Right. So I freaked out because it said with inflammatory breast cancer, you're automatically diagnosed at stage three or four, that there is no earlier stage because by the time the signs of it are showing, it's already an advanced cancer. So I was stage three B. Well, I didn't know at the time, but I was stage three B inflammatory breast cancer. Um, Thank God, because stage four, um, you know, is it's 
very limited lifespan. Um, and what I did is I did go to the breast surgeon and she did confirm the diagnosis. I ended up having to have a punch biopsy of the skin to confirm it, which was different than, you know, a normal way of being diagnosed, but she was pretty sure it was, and it was. And, you know, one of the things that kind of weirded me out is that my local hospital was so excited. They were like, Ooh, we're going to call the whole team together and inflammatory breast cancer. Cause it's very rare. Mm-hmm. Um, statistics show between, you know, well, somewhere under 5% of breast cancers diagnosed, um, are inflammatory breast cancer. So they were very excited to have a case of inflammatory breast cancer. Now, for me, that's a red flag. Yeah. I'm like, who oh, no. knew? <laughs> and couple that with a friend of mine who had had breast cancer gave me a book on breast cancer, a big, thick tome. It was like an encyclopedia. It had like two paragraphs um, devoted to inflammatory breast cancer in the whole book. And basically it said, get into a clinical trial. Um, because your chance of, and find a hospital that specializes because your, your chance of survival will be much better. So I immediately started researching and I found that there's, there were two hospitals, MD Anderson in Texas and Dana Farber in Boston. And I called Dana Farber. They're like, come tomorrow. Um, I have relatives up outside of Boston. I went up, they, you know, did all the testing again, confirmed my diagnosis and had me starting in a clinical um, trial, like the following week, which was great because I could not wait to have chemotherapy. I I mean, I know it scares a lot of people and people worry about their hair falling out and all that stuff. I just wanted those cancer cells to die. I could not handle, I did not like that. I knew that they were, you know, multiplying inside my body while I'm sitting there. You know, I wanted something to halt that. So I think part of what was successful in my treatment was that I wanted the treatment. I was really, I, I wasn't scared. I wasn't, um, I mean, yeah, I was scared of dying, but cause I was like, Oh, I'm going to die. Uh, but I, but I wasn't scared of the treatment. I wanted the treatment. Um, and the other thing that kind of throws a loop in my story is that when I got my diagnosis, I was eight weeks away from traveling to China to adopt my son. And I had been trying to adopt for like five years and finally found this kid. And he was six at the time and was expecting me to come get him. And, you know, is that ethical for me to go get a kid if I'm going to die? You know, so I talked to my oncologist in Boston and she said, I'll go get the kid. Either way, he's going to be better off. So she was very real with me too. Like if you die, you die, you know, he's still better off. (laughs) Okay, great. (laughs) So so I actually went, she let me take time off from my chemo uh, regime to, to go pick him up. I took two weeks. Um, The day after I got back, I had to go up to um, Dana-Farber to have chemo. So this poor kid is being dragged with me (laughs) to Boston. You know, he's already doesn't speak English. Where am I? You know, but I had a friend come with me to China and, uh, that was really helpful because I was bald. I was in a wig. No one knew I had cancer. It was no, uh, nobody asked and I didn't tell. And I went through the, the whole thing. And, um, you know, so my son, my son, his introduction to America was finding out his mom <laughs> had a few issues she had to deal with medically, uh, but it, it turned out. And, and actually that's also a key thing for me is having people in your life that love and count on you. 
you know, and that keep you going on the hard days. Um, because I do have hard days. And a lot of times it's like physician heal thyself. When I post those Facebook messages or other messages, oftentimes it's when I'm starting to have a little bit of self, a negative self-talk. And I know the power of what you say to yourself. I'm a strong believer in it, in manifesting what you project. And so I know I need to manifest positivity uh, because that's going to attract positivity. And if I get into a negative zone, I'm just going to fall down into that negative place that I don't want to be. And, you know, the cool thing about what happened to me, one of the cool things is that I'm actually not scared of dying at all. And I'm going to tell you why, because I was scared in the very beginning and freaking out, of course. And um, but a question kept coming into my head. Was my life worth it? Was my life worth it? Was my life worth it? And I as I look at my life and I know because of the career that I chose in education and I know because of the relationships I have with some kids, I know I've made a difference to some people. Not a ton, not a million, but I know there are people who during my lifetime I have helped. And that brought me so much peace that I've, you know, I've used my life. I've at least I've used part of my life to make things better. Um, and that just for some reason makes it so it's okay. Whatever happens is okay. I don't focus on the negative. I don't focus on, oh, the cancer could come back. I don't focus on uh, all those things. Um, there are moments when I when it, when I get a little emotional, like if I see somebody, you know, I'm on a uh, support group for people with inflammatory breast cancer. And remarkably, depending on where you live, your level of care can be completely different. Your entire protocol for dealing with your cancer can be entirely different. And I've seen a lot of people die and have, you know, a lot of people have their doctors put them on a protocol, like immediate surgery. That's not called for an inflammatory breast cancer. You have to have chemotherapy first. But when you're in places where people haven't heard about it or, you know, not as good medical care, and then I see someone like that go, pass away, those moments kind of get to me a little bit. But for the most part, I try to stay positive and I try to look at the good things that have come out of it. I am a completely different person than I was before I got diagnosed. And it's in a good way, I think, at least a good way for me. I'm not as much of a people pleaser. I don't tolerate bullshit the way that I used to. I don't worry about small, stupid things. In fact, I'm perplexed when I see people get all bent out of shape about the smallest thing. It's just so confusing for me. But it's because they haven't had this enlightening experience, which which shows them what's important and what's not. And I've been blessed to have that experience. It's definitely not for the faint of heart, but you find that you're strong of heart. You have to be. I had a math teacher in high school that said the only thing you have to do is die and pay taxes. Those are the, everything else is optional. <laughs> so, you know, live. You get hit by a car tomorrow. Yeah. So you have to kind of twist your mindset into I have today. And I say that to myself often. I have today. Today's the day. Don't worry about tomorrow. Don't go back and bemoan yesterday. Today's the day. Mm-hmm. So that helps me. Yeah. It's such a mindful way to live. And again, this is the wisdom that I'm that I'm talking about. 
that just spews from you constantly, you take action and you don't take, you never have, you know, you've, you've, you've taken information and then you check all the sources, you fact check everything. And, you know, one of the other things that I saw that you just posted um, recently was stupid is knowing the truth, seeing the truth, but still believing the lies. And that's where your research comes in. When you get like, we, let's let's take it back to um, the Caring Bridge site and how you decided to step away for a while. Your doctors, I don't know if I can say their names, so I I won't say their names. But you know, Doctor O, Doctor C, you know, they've become characters to me. You know, I'm curious to see where where they are and how they're fitting into the story, and how you take this information and. There's been a lot of information that you've been given that you've disputed and you've said, no, no, I'm not taking that as your answer. I'm going to just pause my visit here for a little while and you're up front with them. And then you go and you do your research and then you seek out something else. And I think this is what a lot of people are afraid of because so many people think, oh, they're a doctor. So they're going to know everything. And I can't tell you how the fabulous conversations I've had with my own doctors, where when I walk in, they're like, hey, Jen, what are you learning now? Tell me. And I, I love to hear that from, from my doctors mm-hmm. because they want to hear what you're learning, what you're doing, what you're into, what you found out, because they in turn, good doctors anyway, right, want to take time with you and they want to turn around and be able to offer as many other options to people who are going through the same thing, who are in the same state emotionally, physically, mentally. And that's what I've that's what I've always loved about you. That's what I've always admired about you. It's such an admirable quality. And I would argue that you have helped tons of people. And and I would even say millions of people, because don't forget about that rippling effect, Katie. You know, you might do for this one, but in turn, they do for the other, they do for the other, they do for the other. And in that support group that they have, that you're a part of, you know, that's that's just a huge, it's a huge rippling effect. Well, I think that for me in my life, and I, my mom was a perfect role model for this. It feels good for me to, to try to help other people. It is, it, it feeds my soul and it, it um, makes me feel like I have value. Yeah. And one of the things that I, I ended up doing is um, one of my colleagues, her husband got um, cancer and it was pretty bad. And I ended up starting to write him a letter and I don't know the husband. Well, I've met him. I had met him like one time, <laughs> but knew of him. Right. And um, I wrote him a letter. It ended up being seven pages long or so. And it was first, it was validating that I know how he feels because, you know, when you get a really devastating cancer diagnosis and they're, they're telling you, you're not going to survive this for long, which is what they told him and kind of what I was told people can try to empathize, but unless someone's really been through that, you know, you can't say, oh, I understand how you're feeling unless you really understand. Um, for someone with cancer, that doesn't feel good when someone's like, oh, I understand how you're feeling. And you're like, no, you don't, <laughs> you know, which holds true for any kind of serious thing. Right. But I found that in this letter, I started writing him first, I validated how, what he was feeling. And then I told him, 
you know, I went into a little bit about finding the best care, but, and, and just some tips for, how, you know, different things that would happen. And, and also the gifts that come with it and, and how to handle things like, you know, when you have family members and you're sick like that, it's your family member is in it too. Your loved one is right there. My mom up until recently, and she's 93 now, but went to every single drove up and back with me to Boston a million times, you know, every surgery, every, everything um, she was there and it was just as bad for her in a different way um, watching me, but there are things you can do to help your loved one feel like they're helping you even when they're in a really powerless position. Um, so I wrote some tips on that. And then what ended up happening is that every time I've heard of someone getting a cancer diagnosis, um, I modify the letter and give it to them to give to whoever it is that has cancer based on the person and what their situation is. And then I started writing a book. I hope you were going there. Yeah, I did start writing a book and the letter is kind of the introduction to the book, but having night school and being a single mom and a full-time job, I try to carve out the time for it. I've written a lot of it, but I still have a significant amount of work to do. But I do think if someone had given me like, even just a seven page, like cheat sheet, <laughs> make sure you do this. Don't do that. Make up things for your family to do for you so that they feel like they're helping you, you know, like yeah. just a list of, of things. Let's talk about that because there's going to be people listening to this saying, okay, well, tell me what those things are. I want to know what those things are. So let's start, let's start with the person who's getting the diagnosis, what would the top three things be? If you could narrow it to three, I don't care if you want to share more, but what would the top three things be um, that you would offer? Number one, you have to get the best medical care you can. And I realize it's hard because of medical insurance issues and proximity. You know, was it a pain in the butt? I would literally drive myself with my mother in the passenger seat most times up to Boston, stay at my aunt's overnight on a Sunday night, have chemotherapy Monday morning and drive home after chemotherapy. And I knew I had about four or four and a half hours until I was going to start to feel sick. That's just how my body worked. And um, so I had just enough time to get home and get into bed. And I did that like every single week for periods of time, you know, that whole traveling that distance was a pain. So you know, you might look at something and say, well, I have this local hospital or I have this one that specializes. That's a pain. Go for the pain, <laughs> you know, make it work. There's all kinds of um, programs where they can put you up in housing and all kinds of things that hospitals have. Take advantage of all those services they have. But that's number one. Don't just settle for the hospital that's close to your house. Uh, there's research supports that your prognosis will be much better if you travel. I think it's more than eight miles for your cancer care. Your prognosis automatically improves because it shows that you're finding the best place, not just the easiest place. So that's number one. I mean, I'm going to throw in therapy for number two, just because you're dealing with your own issues and how to handle your family dealing with their issues. Um, and if the family could have therapy, that's really great. Um, because you are going to change. Um, in fact, I had some problems at work after I was done with my active treatment because people really did not like that I wasn't running up and down the halls like I used to and acting the same way it used to. It didn't mean I wasn't doing my job, 
but in their head, what's wrong with me? You look fine. You should be back to who you were before. This is ridiculous. Um, and they really didn't understand. And that was painful for me. Um, so I, I think therapy and mental, m- mental help. Now I, I talked to a social worker from the hospital. I didn't really go into therapy myself at the time, but I do see in a lot of situations with other people who have cancer that that would be a good, a good thing to do. Um, and this sounds a little morbid maybe, but it gave me a lot of security. Put your ducks in a row. It's actually good practice for anybody, whether they have cancer or not. Put your ducks in a row. Make sure everybody knows where your things are. Make sure you have a will. Make sure you have a living will. You know, make sure, you know, you have what you want written down and just put it somewhere safe and then it's done. So many adults, cancer or no cancer, don't do that. Mm -hmm. And it makes things a lot harder for their loved ones if something were to happen. Um, so the middle part with therapy can take a lot of different forms. It doesn't have to be going to a therapist. It could be meditate, a practice of meditation. It could be support groups. I, I'm a big believer in support groups. I am in a few on Facebook. And while I don't normally post, I do read what others post. And I get a lot of advice, advice for even dealing with physical stuff. Like I get these phantom itches because I'm numb over so much of my body and I can't scratch them. And they it, they could drive you crazy. They could literally, and I've tried everything. You go on there, you do a little search, itch, you find that you're not the only one. So many other people have the same problem. And you you find all the things that they've tried and what what works and get good ideas. And so that therapy thing is really all about your, you know, you're keeping your mind going, moving forward, um, always catching yourself when you start to get negative and that sort of thing. I will say that I did touch on it before, but with your family members, because they feel really powerless, I found that giving my family members concrete things to do, even though I might not even really want it, like, could you go get me some mashed potatoes at Whole Foods? Um, Could you, uh, would you mind rubbing my feet? They just feel really sore. Um, If you give them little things to do for you and they feel like they're helping you and nurturing you, it makes them have a little bit more power over the situation themselves. Um, And I I found that to be a healthy, a healthy thing. People want to feel like they can help you. And for some people, it's really hard to accept help. I, I feel like that's part of the blessings of cancer, too, is that you learn that it's okay to accept help when you need it. And some people are pushy and just push their help on you. And that's great. I remember I had this woman named Jen. She came to my house. She brought me some goodies and she just spewed her wisdom on me. Um, You you know, because when you understand what someone's going through, the urge is to help. Yeah. Um, Let people help you. It's okay. It's okay. I will say one misconception I had, and it was part of the humor that I tried to use. I'm like, oh, I have cancer. I'm finally going to lose that extra weight. <laughs> and my do- Dr. O said to me, Katie, when you start losing weight, that's when you really have to worry. You don't want to start losing weight. Like, okay. you know? um, because all kinds of things. I mean, even what you can eat and tolerate changes while you're going through all that. Yeah. And I found that my... I couldn't look at a vegetable and all I wanted to eat was mashed potatoes and potato chips. How about when you're getting radiation and you know, you're used to eating fresh fruit and salads and, and also when you're getting chemotherapy and they say no fresh fruit 
no salads. And that I like, it was so difficult. And I would come home because when I was going through my treatments, my treatments were different in that I was a week in the hospital with chemotherapy 24 seven, getting the, the radiation every day. And friends and family were so kind and generous. And I would come home to several big bouquets of the edible arrangements. Yes. And I couldn't eat any of it because it was all fresh fruit. I remember calling my radiation oncologist and telling her, I just want you to know, I don't know what's going to happen to me, but whatever happens to me is going to be worth it because I'm eating this chocolate covered apple right now. I just want you to know what could really happen to me. But that's important too for people to know there are certain things that when you're given certain medications, you're not allowed to eat or have. Right. right, And the medications, I mean, there was a point where I had a tote bag full of medications because what happens is you have a, a side effect and you call your doctor and say, oh, I'm experiencing this. And then they prescribe something for you. <laughs> and then it becomes like a chain reaction. Yes. It was fun when I could finally wean off of most, most of those medicines. It was a good, good feeling. My tote bag is much smaller now. Yeah. No. I was always convinced because of where my kid, because of my cancer and all of the, um, with cervical cancer and all of the procedures, they were constantly inside of me with all different kinds of things. They were, um, giving me, I would often have, um, urinary tract infections. And, and funny enough, I never knew it. Like, I, I guess I was dealing with so many other things. That I never even knew it. They would just say, we're giving you this antibiotic because you have a urinary tract infection. And I was so convinced that the reason why I wasn't sleeping, I was wide awake all night. I just could not sleep. And I was so convinced it was because of the antibiotic. And I said to the doctor, no, I know that that's what it is. Please, please take it off. But I wasn't even able to digest the whole physiological thing that was happening inside of me, which was I wasn't making any estrogen. Like I, like my hormones were just like depleting and that was why I wasn't sleeping. And so so now you, now you have to add hormones in the mix and which hormones are going to balance you properly. So yeah, it is definitely a chain reaction. Yeah. And you have to ask, that took me a while too, because I felt like, oh, I'll be bothering the doctor if I call them. You know, um, and I learned, no, just call them. And and yeah. when you have those questions, ask those questions because there are, there is help. You don't have to sit there silently and suffer till your next appointment. You can call and be proactive and, and ask for help. That's yeah, important I'll, too. I'll tell you this, Katie, I don't know if you had it, but when you're talking about care, I really felt like I had the best care. I had my doctor's cell phone number. and. Just to know that. And do you know, every time I called it, he picked up. That's great. I didn't have that, but she was very, Dr. O has retired now. She retired this year, which to me is heartbreaking because the person who replaced her isn't, isn't her um, in a lot of ways, but she would respond. Even if it was Friday night, she was probably out to dinner. I would always get a call back. So I think that's important. You want to have a doctor that uh, you you have a good relationship with and that they want to help you and want to talk to you and want to listen to you um, and understand. And you know that right away. I, I can't tell you because at the most dire time that you need a doctor um, and you've got the best of the best, 
Then when you go for something else, like um, I need to go to the doctor for my foot or I need to go to the doctor for my arm or whatever it is, and they don't have time for you, I just I just say, okay, thank you. And I walk away and I say, okay, no, Next. done. Done with yes. that, doctor. Because we're talking about my foot and you don't have time for my foot. Like, I don't know, when you've had the best of the best, it's very difficult to settle because you know the kind of care that's out there and the kind of care that you deserve. And you should continue to be as proactive as you possibly can until you, all the way down into the cells of your bones, feel like this is the right doctor for me. And that's 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 when you choose your doctor. That's how you choose your doctor. And sometimes you might go to the best facility and it might not be the right fit. You might think, oh, I'm going to Sloan Kettering. Oh, it's good. That's where I got my radiation. And I'll tell you, it was a nightmare because you think, oh, Sloan, it's the best. I went there for radiation because my uh, radiologist in Boston had a relationship down here. And that way I didn't have to stay up in Boston for a month and a half getting radiation. And But I went every single day. And the machines were rate breaking down and, you know, you're waiting with all these people who have limited use to these machines and the radiation itself is so quick, but waiting to get in there and get positioned and get it all right. Um, I would not go back there again for radiation. I would choose another place. Um, and I suppose I could have at the time too, but I just put up with it. Um, but don't, you know, another piece of advice is just because it's a specific name that has a good reputation doesn't mean that that's the right place. Right. I mean, you really have to go half on research and half on gut. Um, it's it's not all one or the other. Yeah. I'd even go a little bit more on gut, but I'm sure there's been plenty of people that have had a great experience there. I had a fabulous experience at my hospital. I know people that wouldn't step foot in it because of the experience that they had. So right. it's, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So you gave really good advice to people and how they should manage their diagnosis when they get it, and then how they can help their families manage their diagnosis. I do want you to touch on the gifts that this kind of diagnosis, any kind of diagnosis can give you, and letting the help in is absolutely one, because I know for me, it was really very hard for me to be vulnerable and let the help in. But boy, when I did, I'm sure you felt the same way. I was just in awe of everyone's, the amount of love and kindness and compassion. I mean, this is really when you see the best of everybody. Yeah, it was strange. It made me feel weird, (laughs) hard to get used to. Um, But yeah, that's definitely one of the blessings or lessons is learning that it's okay to accept help and that it's making the other person feel good. They deserve to feel good and make a difference in the world too. And um, you're allowing them to do that. And, you know, it translates. Like last night, I was uh, worked all day, ran to the doctor, ran to pick up this fundraising dinner that I had to buy for my son's wrestling team, and then ran to a wrestling match. I was exhausted. And I sat there for hours watching my son not wrestle because he didn't wrestle last night. <laughs> um, and then then we found out the boys had to stay and watch the little kids wrestle. So now it's nine o'clock at night and they're going to have to stay longer. And I was just, I could barely sit up. And one of the moms said, oh, Katie, I'll drive Sam home. And I said, oh, that would be great. Now the old me before cancer would have said, no, no, that's all right. I'll drive your son home. Yeah. You know, 
and I would have stayed there and been uncomfortable. And um, of course, at some point I'll drive her son home, but I would, I was, I accepted the help and it was great and made her, her feel good. And it made me feel good. And um, so it'll translate through your life, that yeah. particular lesson. Um, the, the other one is that life is not guaranteed to anybody. And that idea of learning to make today count. Um, what a beautiful lesson that is. Don't sit around and say, oh, yeah, you know, I mean, it's like me at 59 years old. I'm going to I just started another ma- a third master's degree. Talk about ridiculous, you know, but hey, the time is going to go by. Hopefully I'll be here for it. I'm learning. I'm I'm it's interesting. And I'm not just going to sit there, lie back and, oh, I can just read a book and kind of wish that I had gone for the master's in mental health. You know, today's a, a day to do it. I have the energy to do it. I'm going to do it. So learning to to use the day. And that's advice that should any, everybody should have. And we do hear that. But I don't think you really feel it until you get cancer and realize how valuable every day really is. Um, so that's a gift of cancer. Another gift is knowing how many people care about you and love you and support you. And you really find out who the people are who love you deep in their heart, because those are the ones that hang around for the long term. Um, You know, a lot of the friends that I have, like you, Jen, I feel like I could not see you or talk to you for a year and pick up the phone. and It would be like I saw you yesterday, you know, and interestingly, those are the friends that are with me. Are, you know, and will always be with me, not necessarily the one who's in my face every day, but when the chips are down, you know, isn't really there. Um, so that's a beautiful gift that you get realizing um, the love and beauty of, of those people who really, really care about you. Um, and you sometimes one of the gifts is you learn who you don't need in your life. That's you know, often you, the best gift of all. Right. You learn that, you know what, I don't need that drama. I I don't need this person who every time I interact with them is cranky and nasty and I'm constantly trying to make them happy. And maybe I just don't need that enough with that. um, I'm moving forward. You've shed so much, like you've just shed so much and you really get down to the root of it and, and you really get honest and say, you know, I, when I think about it, I never really felt so great around that person anyway. Or, or when I, left their company. I just, I just, I just felt a little unsettled. So this is probably a good break. It's probably good for both of us. Yeah. Things that I wish people learned about when they got a diagnosis is the whole idea that you're not going to be the same and that people may move out of your life and new people may come in and fill those spaces. Um, And that's okay. You know, and it can be hard. It can be hard. You know, it was hard for me at work, which I have found out is actually very common for people at work to have problems after a cancer diagnosis because people don't understand. You know, <laughs> these people thought that I sat at the lunch table too long. And what they didn't realize is that in my head, I was trying to convince myself to stand up because it hurt to stand up. So as I'm lingering at the lunch table, in my the dialogue in my head is, you can do it. Just stand up. You can do it. You don't need to rest anymore. You're going to be able to do it. Just stand up, like trying to convince myself because I knew it was going to hurt to stand up. Um, So even little things like that can be misinterpreted by people because oftentimes after you're done with your active treatment, you look completely normal on the outside. 
and the world, no. your family, your children, your spouse, your parents, your siblings, everybody, they need to know, this is my experience, they need to know that you're better so that they can be better and move forward. And so as soon as they, as soon as you've got, you took a shower, you brushed your teeth, you did it, you did it, you didn't need help, you got yourself dressed, you've got makeup on. Oh my God, you actually just drove to the store. She's back. She's yeah. back. And then, yeah. and then they want everything to go back to normal. Right. For their own, for their own psyche. Right. It's very true. That is something that it's good. I, I think it's good to be prepared for that. And I do think I, my method of being in the world is to be completely transparent. Yeah. Um, I, I overshare. Um, and that could, you know, now that I'm in clinical <laughs> mental health counseling master's program, I'm sure it has to do with some trauma in my youth. Um, Absolutely. But I, but I do, I would rather, I've learned that I'd rather have people know, even if they're like, oh, like, even if I say, okay, guys, like, sorry, I'm just like getting the strength to stand up again. I will say that now um, because I don't really care if they judge me for that. At least they know my truth. Right. And, and they're not making assumptions that aren't true yeah. uh, because after cancer treatment, almost all the, the icky stuff that remains with you is inside of like, it's not apparent on the outside, right? whether it's in your head or chronic pain, or you can't sleep at night or you have anxiety or whatever the, the residuals are, they're not readily apparent to other people. No, they're um, not. And the, the good thing about being open about some of that stuff is that we are in a society that's supposed to be valuing stigma free um, and I can't tell you how many people have shared with me that they have anxiety or panic or whatever when I share that with them. Yeah. Um, and then it gives them an outlet to feel like, oh, it's okay. You know, it's okay. She understands. Um, it's all right. So I wish someone had kind of prepared me for the after cancer because you think, oh, I yes. just get through this treatment and it's going to be great. I'm going to yeah. be back to normal and everything's going to be wonderful. And as normal. long as I survive to the end of this treatment and I get into remission, it's done. And that brings up the other thing that, that everybody, no matter if you're stage zero or stage four, every time you get a headache, a really bad headache, or something feels weird, or there's an unusual little mole or whatever. You're like, Oh my God, the cancer's back. Oh my God, this could be cancer. You get on there, you research on the internet, you know, pain in the back of your thigh could be <laughs> cancer. <laughs> it's just a natural reaction. I feel like, um, and you get used to it, but it, but it is completely normal. So if that happens to you, that's okay. It's, it's normal. And 99.9% .9 of the time it's going to be okay. It's nothing. Yeah. Dr. O used to say to me, Hey, if you're still in pain in two weeks, talk to me. <laughs> you know, she that was her thing. If it la whatever it is lasts for two weeks, then we got to look into it further. Other than that, you're fine. Take an aspirin, you know, <laughs> take yeah. a Tylenol, <laughs> you'll be okay. But that is something I feel that is really left out of um, of conversations about cancer, the after cancer part. Yes, and you know what else I think is as well is your caregiver. Like I know you said, give them something to do concrete wise, but um, I always, you know, Steve was, was wonderful. You've had such a huge support system, but I always wanted Steve to write something on 
to help other caregivers because I feel like they need the support as well. I wanted you to touch on um, a couple of other things for advice. If you can think of three things that you could give to people who are not, they don't have a diagnosis, but they've got a loved one, a friend, a family member who just got a diagnosis. What could they say? I always feel speaking from the heart. You know, sometimes people would say to me, can you believe they said that? And I've said, yes, I can, because they do not know what to say to you. And they want, they, I I almost feel like, well, I don't want to say there's, there's not a wrong thing to say. I I think if you speak from the heart and you're sincere and you're authentic, (laughs) then whatever you have to say is fine. But I just remember I had someone stand, somebody near and dear to me stand next to my bed the shoulders slumped hunched over just looking at me with just this withdrawn face cancer is such a terrible thing i can't believe you have this i said steve keep her out of my room i don't even want her she can she cannot come in here she is not allowed in here no more that of course is is not helping anyone right (laughs) Well, one of the things that I told people that I really appreciated is um, text messages with mostly just emojis (laughs) and not expecting a response from me. Yeah. Because those little text messages, and I do it to other people too. I'll send like a heart and the strong, you know, the muscly arm um, and the prayer hands. Um, Just it lets people know that you're thinking about them without them having to respond to you. Mm -hmm. And I think feeling like people are thinking of you is helpful. Um, Definitely, you know, if someone said, I just love you so much and I'm so glad I have this time here with you, you know, I'm so glad we're together right now. You know, again, focusing on today being the day, not what's going to happen tomorrow and not don't start mourning someone being lost when they're still here. Um, You know, they don't want to watch you mourning their loss while they're still here because to them it's you're you're already given up on them and you know i always appreciated humor i i always did uh one of my friends came with me to chemotherapy and she brought um will and grace dvds Uh yeah so that that was you know just keep it keep it light and follow the 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 tone that the that the person is setting themselves you know if you can tell they're in a kind of a laughy mood, be just joke around. Yeah. If you can tell they just need to be comforted, you know, hug them. Yeah. You don't even have to say anything. I'll You're begin. Right I might begin a text that says, do not respond to this. Yes. And then I'll just That's say what whatever I, like. I want to say. But I want them because if if there's somebody like me that feels like, oh, I need to respond to them so they know that they've been heard. Nope. I'm giving you permission. Don't respond. I just right. want you to know. Right. Yes, absolutely. And again, that crosses all kinds of issues. It could be a death of a loved one. It could be, you know, uh, um, just think of any trauma that anybody goes through. Um, Doing that for people, I think, is a great gift. Letting them know that you're thinking of them without them having to engage because at a time when they probably don't feel like engaging, but that that little bit of reassurance and love goes a long way. Yeah. I don't think about And I don't think I ever really thought that I was going to die. Like I didn't accept that as that was what was going to happen. 
I didn't let myself think that far ahead other than asking if I could adopt my son and having her say, well, either way, it's better off. You know? <laughs> hey, Dr. O. Um, I just didn't don't dwell on that stuff. I think our brains are more powerful than we can ever imagine. And also, I mean, this might sound a little kooky, but when I was getting chemotherapy, I would imagine in my head that medicine coming in and like hacking through yes. cancer cells. Yes. Like, like this I was light coming. Yep. Yep. Yeah. I was visualizing the death of those abnormal cells and taking great pleasure in it, by the yeah. way. Like I was ecstatic when I started chemotherapy. Do you know that there's people who won't get chemo because they don't want to lose their hair? To me, that's mind blowing. I actually loved being bald. If I'm being truthful, at one point <laughs> I told my superintendent that I was going to shave my head. He's like, that's fine. <laughs> I'm like, okay. Um, all that stuff becomes so irrelevant to me, at least I, I guess it doesn't to everybody, but um, take joy in your treatment. You're yeah. okay. Here we go. Yeah. And and yes, there's going to be really hard days. They don't, there's a reason they call it fighting cancer. Yeah. You are fighting, but you will find out you're stronger than you ever knew you you could be and you will get through it. It's not, it's not that bad. It'll be all right. You know, I guess like, just like giving birth, you know, it hurts really bad and you want to kill somebody. And then after it's over, you're like, oh yeah, I think I'll have another baby in a couple of years, you know, because you made it through it. And as horrible as the pain may have been, it's just a memory now. In your post, February 22nd on CaringBridge, you say, not one to sit around and accept a crappy diagnosis. I started researching and researching because you were talking about when you were told by your doctor that, yeah, there's you're going to be living with this open wound for the rest of your life. Yeah. And you felt like she had given up on you. And you said, I'm pissed. And I loved that you, you talk about it knocked you flat. It crushed you. It destroyed you. You're, it destroyed your hope. You've always allowed yourself to feel your feelings and really allow all those feelings to work through. And you gave them time to work through. And then you moved forward. You didn't wallow in it. You didn't wallow in it. And I think that's, that's a testament to your strength. Because a lot of people try to push those feelings down or they say, oh, I'm supposed to be positive. I'm supposed to be. And that's just, you know, that's well, just that's unrealistic. But yeah, bad. I could not accept that. Could not. There had to be another way. There just had to be. That's yeah. And there was. Yeah.